I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about the week in review, what TV shows and movies we've been watching since the last episode, move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion, or a movie review, then finish up with film faves, our 12 respective lists around a, a particular topic, uh, often uh, marching backwards through time with our favorite uh, movies. Our podcast also features our lovely dog, Lady Leia. <laughs> snorting you, in the background yeah you might hear her in the background i try to do what i can with the editing but sometimes things happen in this episode however our main event will be a review of spider-man far from home which just came out this past week weekend uh, depending on your perspective of the holiday weekend and then we will also have film faves continuing our year-long series in coordination with the year-long series of articles on the blog best of 2010s will be counting down our favorite sci-fi and fantasy films so i'm looking forward to this it should be a lot of fun this episode let's get started first Let's acknowledge we are recording... Happy 4th of July! On the 4th of July. Independence Day! Yes. So hopefully we're we're trying to get recorded before all the fireworks go off. Hopefully none of that gets started before we're done recording. This is Um, our second time that we're we're recording on 4th of July. That's a good point. Last time we were in a vacation house, I remember now... And there was, like, background noises of a fairy or something like that. Yeah. We tried really hard. It was really a uh, tough recording space back then. But I, I just wanted to really quickly acknowledge, Shanna, you know, one of the ways that we like to celebrate on the 4th of July sometimes is by watching movies that, you know, are in the spirit of America or 4th of July, Independence Day, all that sort of stuff. What's one of your favorite movies to watch? Maybe someone might want to check it out. Okay. It's Independence Day. It's Independence Day. Because I think, what year did that come out? 1996. Okay, so I was nine. Yeah. And I was like, my interpretation of America was very much influenced by that movie. A lot of movies. Minus the aliens, okay. But, (laughs) But what it was was like, oh, this is what America looks like. America looks like, I'm going to have my family barbecue. Uh, like oh, yeah. with Will Smith, you know, yeah. freaking out at the alien like that. And, right. you know, someone being environmentally conscious, Jeff Goldblum, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, making sure that we're recycling. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. We could avoid the apocalypse if we do that. That's so funny. This is like my nine-year-old self. Right. From a different country, for those who are new. Yeah, living in South Africa. That was like, I was like, this is great. Oh, and that guy's gay and it's not a problem? This is fantastic. You know, so that movie really influenced me. (laughs) Very cool. In that way, I like it because I think that you can have, you know, you can do... A 4th of July realistic depiction of how it came to be, how the independence was, you know, fought for. Uh But I think that adding some, like, sci-fi or fantastical element is so much more interesting. Okay. And it ends in fireworks. It does, yeah. For me, I'm going to go golden age here. 
the two that stand out to me the most, and there's a lot of movies uh, like American Tale and stuff that we've talked about, but the two that stand out to me the most is Yankee Doodle Dandy, which I think is from the 1930s, maybe 1942, but with James Cagney about the life of, uh, gosh, what's his name, Cohen, uh, who who wrote the, the musician. Yeah, who wrote the song Yankee Doodle Dandy and a bunch of other marching songs. Uh, I love that film. That's one of his few musicals. He's mostly known as for gangster roles, and this is a completely different side of James Cagney, so I love that. I, I've always found him charming in that movie. And then the other one is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I knew that was going to be it. By With Jimmy Stewart by Frank Capra, which very much so... I mean, you can't get much more patriotic than that and more hopeful and very much like in the spirit of what this nation can be even though like it's not necessarily a diverse film it's very much of the golden age of hollywood you know and reflects that but still like it it reflects so much of the spirit of independence day and what we can be as a country so those are two of my go-tos so again happy independence day america happy fourth of july now let's dive on into the week in review. Shanna, you had a TV series that you watched that you wanted to share with us. What was that? Yeah, so I'm still on my epic quest to watch everything that Netflix has made. Good luck. While browsing Netflix, I came across The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Now for those that don't know, this happened about 12 years ago. The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. So it's a documentary, eight episode, you know, documentary crime show. The reason I wanted to watch this was I remember 12 years ago, this being on every news channel my family watched. Mm. We watched Sky News. We watched BBC News. We watched, you know, our local channels. We watched CNN. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was so much on CNN as it was on the other European channels. But it was on for months and months. And it's my generation's John Benet Ramsey case. Okay. You know, things went wrong in this particular investigation of this kidnapping of this three year old Madeline McCann while they were in holiday in Portugal. They're, they're origin, you know, they're from England. Mm-hmm. And their child got kidnapped out of their apartment mm-hmm. while, she w- while the child was sleeping. But things went wrong in this investigation that are very similar to the John Benet Ramsey case. For instance, the crime scene got contaminated. And that's how they start the show. And then with each episode, they're trying to show you a broader, more truthful depiction of what was actually happening. Like the facts. Be- yeah, mm-hmm. because what was happening from just a viewer's point when, you know, 12 years ago was just a media circus frenzy. Mm. I mean, you had all these different European channels coming in and and trying to get the scoop on the story, trying to be the first, you know, and it was just, it was very interesting. And then it talks about how that crime scene, the crime scene was in, contaminated. And then it goes into how the police messed up and mm-hmm. how the communication between, you know, the British and the Portuguese was not the best. How the parents messed up, how the restaurant that they were eating at while the child was kidnapped messed up. Okay. The, uh, how the media circus, I mean, I think they spend about two episodes on that. 
uh, just totally controlled people's opinions about this case. Mm. Uh, the time that was wasted on nonsense versus trying to find the child. It's just very complicated, and that's why I think it's a good idea that this show was created. Okay. To try and give you a sense of, hey, if you remember this being on the news 12 years ago, and you still wonder, because occasionally I do, mm-hmm. because that's my generation's John Benet Ramsey, here's what actually was happening. Now that we're away from it, we can say this is everything that we found out and what we observed. Because in between you know, the police, police's investigation, the parents eventually were able to hire different private investigators and now they, they, just, they just continually try to search for her. Hmm. They did not take part in, the, in this documentary because they felt like it wasn't going to help find her on a practical level. Okay. But watching this for me was very interesting because you only get one side of the story really when you're seeing it from the media's perspective. And the media went from loving this family to hating them when the parents were accused of something. Later you find out, you know, obviously they didn't do it. Okay. So, I mean, it's just a, it was just a mess. And so I really appreciated seeing it, how it got messed up and why. Okay, so a couple questions. One, you really liked it? I liked it. It was helpful. It gave me clarity. Two, if you have never heard of this case before, is do you do you think these holds any appeal whatsoever? I think or so. Or has any purpose behind it for those that maybe have never heard of this case? I think so, because here's what you can see from it. You can see that, okay, if something goes wrong when you're visiting another country, maybe you ought to, you know, find out how something like, okay, if the worst case happened, we go to country A, if our child got kidnapped, what would be the procedure? That might be something to research ahead of time. And as well as how the media back then might be different to now because now we have something a little different where it's like well is that article made by a real person mm. uh, that's been shared on facebook apparently this was also the start of social media channels and so it also talks about how people that didn't know anything that didn't have facts acted like they had facts mm. when they didn't mm. and it was just opinions that were being taken as facts okay. so it's that is interesting so that's, again, The Disappearance of Madeline McCann, available on Netflix. I watched a couple things. I caught up on two 2018 movies. The oh. first one I caught up on was Ari Aster's Hereditary, which was oh, sort of the horror movie of the year. I don't think there was another movie last year that was as well-received as Hereditary was or talked about. Ari Aster, he just came out with a second film this year, uh, actually this past weekend or so, called Midsummer, which I have not caught up with, but it's it's reputed to be pretty damn good as well. This movie essentially is about... How do I describe it? So it's a family going through grief. The grandmother... The worst true horror in reality. Okay. Uh, What makes you say that? Because grief is the worst thing to experience, and we're all going to experience it at some point. Mm. Where no no one is exempt from it. Fair enough. 
So there's a grandmother in the family who recently died. She's apparently a little bit antisocial, a little reclusive, a little odd. Tony Collette plays her daughter, who's the mother of the main family. Aiden Quinn plays her husband. And then you have um, a son and a daughter, a teenage boy and a daughter who's somewhere around 12 years old. She's a little bit of an odd duck. So it's a little bit, you know, all, all of a sudden they start seeing or experiencing things, particularly the daughter and then the, the mother and son. Aiden Quinn is, plays sort of the bewildered, doubtful father slash husband figure. I'll just say that this movie, basically from the very start, is incredibly unsettling. And it just, like, it maintains that. It is super creepy. And it just slowly ratchets up the tension to uh, a, a climax that is very disturbing, a little bit gory, and... A little bit messed up. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away or give any specifics about it, but um, I will say it was very effective mood-wise. I'm not sure I think that it's like one of the most amazing horror films to come out in the past several years. It is definitely a very good one. It is definitely among the better ones. You know, this is not a run-of-the-mill horror film. This guy, Ari Aster, is definitely scratching at something here. And he is a guy who loves character-driven horror. He's not a guy who is all about necessarily sudden jump scares and sudden gory kills in his horror. That The film definitely is not riddled in that. It's definitely more character and mood-oriented. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he's like influenced by people like Dario Argento and, and, and others that who, who are more atmospheric and mood-centered and attention centered in their horror because that's what um hereditary uh delivers and uh I, i'm glad i caught up with it i didn't love it but um i thought it was worth talking about here is it more on the supernatural or on the realistic side of horror it definitely gets supernatural after a certain point because there is a seance at one point kind of thing it's a little bit rosemary's baby in some ways too mm-hmm. but not not for the literal ways you might be thinking yeah it's it's this is a guy who's clearly influenced by those kinds of films. So mm-hmm. that's Hereditary from last year. So I caught up with that. All ready to go for Midsummer whenever I catch up with that one. The next movie I caught up with was Jonah Hill's directorial debut, Mid-90s, which essentially is this character piece about a... Tw- I want to say he's like a 12-year-old boy, maybe 13. He's very young. He has a single mom played by Catherine Waterston. So he's got an older brother who's like 18, played by Lucas Hedges. He's got a big chip on his shoulder. He's kind of a jerk, but he's got something going on underneath everything. Um, he's kind of a jerk to his brother. He likes to beat up his brother. This thing is very firmly set or between 94, 96, somewhere around there. You see a lot of stuff in the background or music that definitely references that time. But this is a drama in the vein of indie dramas of the 90s. It has that feel to it, which I found very interesting how evocative it was of 
that style and feel of the indie dramas of the 90s. I thought it was actually a, a very strong debut. I was very impressed with Jonah Hill's efforts here in mid-90s. It, it's a film that deals with toxic masculinity. The, the kind that, like, you know, that boys are kind of not necessarily raised into, but they, they are surrounded by in a way that makes them think this is how I'm supposed to be. You know, the, the main character, he starts out really nice and polite and, and, and encouraging, and he's told not to be that way because he's going to be, uh, forgive my language, a fag, or people will think of him that way if um, he is, if, he's, if he says things like thank you or you can do it or whatever, you know, so he's, he's course corrected into thinking, oh, okay, well, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is, this is what a man's supposed to sound like, all that sort of stuff. You know, how he talks about intimacy and other things uh, is definitely like an interesting look uh, at toxic masculinity in that sense. So does it remind you of Mind the Gap? Uh, That's a very good question, Uh, especially since there is a character in the group of people that he kind of befriends of skateboarders. I I should mention, I don't think I even mentioned, he kind of befriends a a group of skateboarders and um, gets into the skateboarding culture. So that's a really great question there. It's interesting because one of them actually is filming them skateboard oh isn't that funny it's fascinating it I seems mean, like but it is a regular a thing, thing right it is a thing that you probably would film like someone i guess yeah. and i mean like it's also interesting because like they talk a lot about what their motivations are like what they hope to do and stuff and and that guy's like oh i um, i just want to be a, a filmmaker maybe someday and he gets laughed at and he's like yeah that was a dumb idea I don't know, maybe I'll just work at the office with my dad. You know, these kinds of things. It's um, really good. So, yeah, I guess, like, there's some similarities for sure. It's not, I don't, I found Mining Gap a more powerful film, maybe because it's, like, a a nonfiction film, a documentary as opposed to a fiction uh, film. But I also started to think, like, I know Jonah Hill hung out with this kind of people, and he himself would be the first to say, like, I'm not a skateboarder, like, I skateboard for crap, but I did enjoy being a part of that culture, I did enjoy mm-hmm. the activity. I kind of wonder if, like, these characters are ciphers for him in any way. Like, one or a multitude of them were for when he was at that age. So it's it's pretty fascinating, and it definitely made me look forward to seeing more films by Jonah Hill. I give it a, a 7 out of 10. Cool. So that's mid-90s. And lastly, what was the last thing I saw? Oh, yes. Lastly, I caught up with the brand new Danny Boyle Richard Curtis film. Danny Boyle, he of Slumdog Millionaire, Train Spotting, 127 Hours, 28 Days Later, Sunshine, so many great films. And Richard Curtis, the screenwriter of Four Weddings and a Funeral, About Time, Nodding Hill, Love Actually, uh, Great Love Stories. They teamed up for a movie of that posits what if the world suddenly lost the Beatles music and didn't remember them at all, right? What if there was no Beatles, so to speak? Great concept, great team. This is a move. This is probably Danny Boyle's best idea that is the worst executed. That is so disappointing. 
It, it was slightly disappointing. It's cute. It's fine. It's okay. It's one of those movies that if you don't expect much and you're just going for a date movie or a good time, then it will do. But my biggest problems, honestly, with the movie was actually Danny Boyle's influence on the film because he would do these uh, visual flourishes, mostly showing us very large text, telling us where the story is now, when you could obviously tell where the story is. Like it's already been established before. It's so you know where it's being, where it's cutting to, and having text in big, huge letters going across the screen is greatly unnecessary. Mm. And also, though, the biggest the biggest failing of the film is the writing here. It's, it's a bummer. Richard Curtis has done a lot of really great stuff, but here he seems more interested in a romance between the main character, who's the only guy in the world who remembers the Beatles' music, and Lily, Lily James, who plays his best friend slash manager, She's absolutely lovely in it. He's totally fine. He carries the film. But the, the writing seems more interested in a love story between them than this greater concept that it, interests, it, that it introduces that I think is way more interesting. And also the film actually points out there's, there's other things too along the way that suddenly don't exist too. Like so, for instance what? I don't want to say... Because those are part of the, the few joys the film oh, brings okay. about, right? Fair enough. And the film's not really about those anyway. But the interesting thing about the movie is that it does show that the songs by the Beatles are so great that they'd be huge today if they were to come out for the first time. You know, mm. They're just that damn good. And it really does sell how good the songs by the Beatles, how, how great that catalog is. By the Beatles actually is. So yeah, that's that's basically my take on yesterday. Coming from the creative forces behind it and its concept, it's it's quite a disappointment. And so I give it a six out of ten. That's yesterday. Alright, Shanna, you and I saw a couple things, one of which we were going to talk about in the last episode of The Movie Lovers, and we realized we referenced the film during the episode, but halfway through recording, we realized that we forgot to talk about it. And now it's been a and month this... since we've seen it, and that movie is Dark Phoenix. You know, that probably shows how we felt about the movie, sadly. I mean, it was your second worst film of the year, basically, uh, when we were talking about the the best and the worst of the year so far. You said that you were torn between our pick, which ended up being a mutual pick, and this film. So why don't you talk a little bit, I've talked enough for right now, talk a little bit about Dark Phoenix and what your thoughts were. So I felt like Dark Phoenix, the best part for me, being who I am, my interest in visuals and photography and cinematography. I felt like the best part was Sophie Turner and the effects that surrounded her mm. in making her the Phoenix. Okay. And I just felt like I wanted to love this movie because I love X-Men even more than I love Star Wars. And Ghostbusters. And Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. They're like my thing, you right. know? Yeah. And unfortunately, I couldn't love it. What I did love more about this version of Phoenix than the third X-Men movie was how 
Jean was depicted in this one. Okay. And how everything came together. Mm-hmm. Okay. For her. Her character, her arc. Mm-hmm. That's what I liked. Mm-hmm. But everything else fell flat for me. I feel like Jessica Chastain was, like, that wasn't the best you could have given her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, we all know that she's this amazing actress, and I feel like she got jibbed, so... Mm-hmm. That's my thoughts. So three things I'd like to respond to that if I could really quickly. First of all, I don't think during production and writing, they knew that this was going to be the final film of the series. I think they're still planning on having actually another one or two films after this. And it only became the final film of the series because of Disney buying last year or the year before Fox uh, movie studios and thus acquiring X-Men for Marvel Studios, and therefore, like, like they, Fox no longer could continue the series, right? I hear what you're saying. However, they took so much time for rewrites. Uh, no, not the reshoots. Only the only the only the third act, by the way. Oh. It was only the third act, uh, which you might be able to still make an argument of. Okay, well, the last few minutes they could have done something, but it would have felt tacked on if they had either way. The other thing I would like to respond to is. Like, oh, about the 2006 X-Men The Last Stand. I agree with you in the sense that it is at least better than that movie, which was an atrocity and a, a film that is like one of the only movies that makes me like physically, violently angry mm-hmm. when I think about it. Because mostly because uh, not only did it take great liberties with the characters and do things that it just really did not have any right to do, did not earn... But also because it's just this mess of an awful movie and it still had some cool things in it like Beast for the first time and all these other things. Yes, I feel like the depiction of Phoenix is better in this than the other one. But the third thing is I agree with you. Jessica Chastain's character is a huge reason why this movie fails. She is so poorly written. I don't even know why the marketing on this decided to keep her character a secret and its identity because it doesn't... It doesn't doesn't, even make sense. It doesn't blow your mind. Yeah. I don't even consider this to be a spoiler because it's in the first 20 minutes and that's one of our things. She's an alien species. Turns out from the comics, she's from the species that the phoenix actually accidentally blew up when in the comics the phoenix flared and blew up an entire planet that's supposed to that's, be the queen that's um her no 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 you're thinking of you're thinking of the shiar oh, okay. you're thinking of no completely See, i keep pieces. hoping that they're gonna come in <laughs> i know i know no she plays yeah. this 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 um alien that at the time you didn't even know them you didn't even see them right you just knew that phoenix actually blew up a planet accidentally right she plays someone from that that alien species but she's so poorly written. What are the rules of what she can do? What are her motivations? Everything are so underdeveloped and poorly done that it, as a antagonist of the film that puts Jean Grey in the middle of everything, it is such a huge disappointment and a failure. And a failure of Jessica Chastain's talents. I mean, I think Jessica Chastain is one of the greatest actresses of the decade. Me too. You know, she she's deserving of more than this. And then the other thing is 
this film is lacking any memorable moments. I mean, it's been a month since the film, since we saw the film, and even like a few days after the film, there's not a standout scene really in this film that that goes toe to toe with any of the scenes in X X Two, let's say, or even First Class or Days of Future Past. Like, oh there's God, some I love that great one. scenes in each of those movies. Yeah. Dark Phoenix is very vanilla in the sense that it is lacking all of those things. Uh, so I think that Dark Phoenix is un, is somewhat unfairly like raked through the coals. I don't think it's the worst X-Men film ever made. No, we all know which one is the worst. But it is very, very mediocre, you know? So it's it's. I agree with you. It's not... It's not a film that this series should have gone out on yeah i don't think apocalypse was either you know it wasn't a great movie either it was very mediocre but at any rate so those are our thoughts on dark phoenix for what they're worth a month later and then lastly we had one other movie yeah toy story 4 toy story 4 so we caught up with toy story 4 we were trying to do this as a main event review. It didn't work out due to a scheduling conflict. So we thought we'd share a few thoughts, as promised in the previous episode. Shanna, what are your thoughts on Toy Story 4? I was very pleased with Toy Story 4. I wasn't really disappointed in any element. There wasn't really anything that I didn't like about the film. But that's not to say that I felt like there needed to be a tweak here or there. I like the direction they went with. I know that there's a lot of outrage on the internet about the direction they went in, but I felt like we needed to see what could happen in the evolution of a toy being able to make decisions and practice. So I will not get into spoilers on this film uh, i will say first of all there's not a lot of outrage uh, online about what you're about the ending or, or where this goes uh, it's actually uh, a minority the majority of people actually love this film critics people what have you uh, audiences i however am in that minority uh you were looking forward to the film i was wary of it yeah Oh, I will say, I I got disappointed that there wasn't a Pixar short. And then the oh. first few minutes of the film made me cry like a baby. And I was like, and that's why they didn't need a short. Because they give you your cleansing cry in the first eight minutes of the film. So, I think this is the worst and most exhausting film of the entire series. I do not think Toy Story 4 justified itself. I think it's... And then again, I know I'm in the minority here. I think it, it, first of all, betrays everything that one of the major characters has been about and fought for for the entire series. I think it betrays the ensemble in, because we don't get, well, most of the ensemble gets sidelined in the film in favor of newer characters who I would argue are not nearly as interesting as the characters we have loved for over 20 years. Uh, I hope you're not referring to Bunny and Ducky. Because I thought they were hilarious. I think that they're just fine, but I do not think that they are nearly as interesting. I will say, I think Duke Kaboom, he was one of the most talked about characters of the summer. I think he's fine. I don't think he's all that great a character. I think he's fine. Keanu Reeves is having fun, and that's fun to see. 
But in no way do I think he's a fascinating or interesting character. I think that there's other characters that we don't get to spend much time with that are more interesting. And there's a new character who you've seen in the marketing called Forky, who is also very interesting. And he has some very funny uh, scenes that I enjoy. But it's not a good trade-off for the characters that we've loved to have them sidelined the way they were and for this for the focus to be on one character in particular and a bunch of new characters who aren't nearly as interesting uh lastly uh why why is it the most exhausting for me i find it the most exhausting because there's this trope that happens in every toy story film usually once maybe twice where a character or a set of characters will be on a mission to do a thing or get to a thing, right? And then all of a sudden something will distract their attention, right? And and they'll be distracted enough to either miss out on that thing or be completely deviated away from their goal. This movie does that not once, not twice, but at least three or four times. And I found that incredibly exhausting and tiresome. I feel like it's a trip that you can only get away with once or twice in a 90-minute to two-hour film. So I'm just airing my thoughts. I'm in the minority here. I get it. But I really think like they should have left well enough alone. Toy Story 3 is a uh, fine ending to the series. And we didn't, need, we didn't need this one. Did you have any responses or last thoughts? I mean, like, I disagree with you with a lot of things Mm -hmm. because I see it differently. I think that you're right in that, you know, we we got exhausted three or four times with their mission. You are not necessarily correct about the betrayal of how you feel about it. How I interpret your feeling about it is I feel like you're the dad that won't let his kid grow up or evolve. That's how I feel about it. And I think that that's fair for me. Mm-hmm. But I think that your thing is also fair because it's like, well, maybe your interpretation of those characters and their purposes mm-hmm. is one way and that's all that you get. Mm. But I feel very differently about it. I feel like, oh my gosh, like, can you imagine if you were this this thing that could have life? It's a gift mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can go another step forward, another step forward with it. Lady, you know, is doing these little squeakers and um, grunts, and I think she's saying she agrees with me. And you, you are not alone. Most people do. Most people do. So, but that's. Look, I'm also guilty of I will eat anything up that they throw at me. Okay? okay. Look, I do have a love for it. Yeah. And therefore, because I have a love for it, I'm always going to be able to justify their decisions. So I will buy all the merchandise, even if it's on sunscreen. And you, you know? are. And. <laughs> and you know it was part of my childhood and it all makes sense to me okay so that is toy story 4 i'm gonna leave it there because we do need to move on anyway but uh, what did you think about toy story 4 are you in the minority like me do you think that they should have left well enough alone and what they've done is a travesty more or less or at least a great disappointment or you know or do you you go right along with it feel free to email us at the gibson review at gmail.com we have a review we have to get to, though. And that is a review of Spider-Man Far From Home. Thank you, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. That was so good. Hey, sorry I'm late. Happy. You look nice. Thank you. You too. Thank you. New dress? Yes, it is. How'd you know? <laughs> what just happened? 
planning a trip? Mm-hmm. Going to Europe. It's a school trip. Did you get your passport? Peter Parker here to pick up a passport, please. Mini toothpaste? Mm-hmm. Pack your suit. I just want to go on my trip with my friends. Europe doesn't really need a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. You look really pretty. And therefore, I have value. No, no, that's not I'm right. messing with you. <laughs> you look pretty, too. I just want to spend some time with MJ. I think she really likes me, dude. That reminds me when I first fell in love. I had just finished my phone call. So nice to finally meet you, Spider-Man. You're Nick Fury. Put some clothes on. Let's go for a ride. Is he going to be okay like that? Might want to turn him over so he doesn't swallow his tongue. I think Nick Fury just hijacked our summer vacation. Awesome! We got gifts, Parker. But we have a job to do. Are you going to step up or not? You're all alone. Your friends are in trouble. What are you going to do about it? You don't want any part of this. like Iron Man and Thor rolled into one. He's not Spider-Man. What is it with you and Spider-Man? What, he looks out for the neighborhood, has a dope suit, and I really respect him. Sup, dickwad? And that's from the trailer to Spider-Man Far From Home, the latest and last effort in phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Following up from Avengers Endgame, First of all, uh, what we usually do when we review a film is we first talk about the good, what we liked about a movie, what worked for us before moving on to the bad, what didn't work for us, what were the weaknesses of the movie, and then we have spoilers and uh, discussion and final thoughts. Uh, With Spider-Man, plot is basically post-Avengers Endgame. Peter Parker wants to, he, he has this opportunity of a class trip. And he just wants to get away from everything for a little while and have a nice little vacay. Maybe court his uh, his crush, MJ, played by Zendaya, and just have a nice time with Ned and his pals. And plans do not go according to plan. Nick Fury's trying to get a hold of him. There ends up being trouble in Venice. Wrong. In Venice, originally. He's in, originally in Venice. Um, there's a mistake mysterious character named Mysterio that pops up fighting these creatures and Peter Parker plans do not go how he wants oh I will also say before I kick it over to you Shanna uh, we will be probably spoiling Avengers Endgame if you haven't seen that if you're not like most of the society that has seen that movie you're probably not going to see Spider-Man Far From Home at least if you or I don't know what you're thinking. I know my parents are going to go see Spider-Man, but they have no interest in the other two. 
They are crazy. <laughs> I love them, but they're crazy. So, you know, just be aware if you haven't seen that movie, we will be spoiling that because this movie does in the first 20 minutes anyway. So, Shanna, what did you think uh, about Spider-Man Far From Home? What is good about this movie? I will say that I don't know if Peter Parker is going to a public school or a private school. I think he's going to a public school. But, man, do they have funding for their science and math groups because... I think it's a, it's a, it's a private institute. It's like a tech... Tech school. It's like the smartest of the smart kids, or all oh. the smart kids go. Like okay. even that was one thing that was established in Homecoming is <sighs> even like the bullies are nerds as well as like the people who are bullied are nerds. Like there's no like no one who's not like wow. smart. You know what an interesting dynamic to what we're used to seeing in movies. Yeah. Anyway, I'm like, <laughs> he's in all the groups and he gets to go places because last time it was New York, wasn't it? Uh, no, they went to oh, D.C. It was D.C. Because, yeah. of course, it takes place in New York. He's, he's yes, a Brooklyn kid. that's right. Yes, how dare I. <laughs> I loved the pace of this film. Mm-hmm. I loved the characters. I loved the characters so much. Mm. You know, we, we, we've got a lot of high school kids here, and they're all loved. I think that's the new thing. You know, that was happening in Booksmart. All the high school characters in there were loved and treated well. And in this one, all of the characters are treated well and they all get enough screen time. And that's really exciting. I know that's a hard thing to juggle, but apparently Marvel knows how to do that. To clarify, we're talking about primarily like four teenagers in the class out of a class of like 30 or something like that, that it focuses on. Well, even the side character that, you know, gives Peter Parker a hard time. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about Flash or the other character that's introduced in this movie? The guy that's always Instagramming. Yes, yeah, that's Flash. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. That's Flash Thompson. All right. You know, even he gets significant screen time and it's mm-hmm. just right. So it feels, I feel like their pacing of the story, I feel like their formula of how the characters interact and when they interact and how is really well balanced. Mm. It's like this really nice, well-oiled machine that we've got going here with the Marvel movies. And I really appreciate it. I also appreciate these these little moments of high school being depicted in a very interesting way. They're talking, as you said, it happens after Endgame. So, you know, all these high school kids come back. And I find it very interesting, the different things that they're dealing with. You're talking about how it addresses the five-year leap in time in Endgame and and those who disappeared and uh, came back. Yeah, and from like a teenager's perspective, because let's be honest, the teenager's perspective of the blip is going to be very different to an adult's. So I I found that very interesting, and we can talk about that later. Yes, and the blip is a concept they introduce in this film. It refers to the reappearance of everybody who disappeared five years previous in the events of Infinity War. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts about what you liked about the movie? I love the villain. I mm-hmm. thought the villain made sense. I did see it coming. So that always makes me happy. <laughs> I did foresee it. And yeah, what did you like about it? So I'll say that we just got out of this movie a couple hours ago. And so all of our thoughts on the film are very fresh and uh, maybe not fully processed. But I, I have to say, I kind of loved the movie. I, I had a really great time with it. It was, it was a blast. It dealt, like you said, it dealt with the events of Endgame very well. Infinity War and Endgame very well. 
uh, what the reality of that would be. It, 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 you have these different character dynamics of these teenagers put, putting them together. Because it's a huge coincidence that just so happens that all of Peter Parker's friends and frenemies happen to also have been among the disappeared. But, you know, part of the, the snap, right? You have to get over that. And, you oh, know, were you upset about it? For me, it was easy to get get over, but it is one of those things that you can nitpick and be like, you know, that's that's pretty damn convenient, you know. Um, at any rate, the biggest thing for me is how it adapts the character Mysterio, who mm. is from the comics. You know, he's very much a very '60s character, right? He's a Stan Lee character, very much that four color, you know, primary color like page comic book in in big the greens quotes and purples and capitals uh, villain mm-hmm. right he's a guy with a fishbowl on his head right now and, if that's not enough to make a warning well signal is is he can come across incredibly hokey i think he's a character that they probably very deliberately avoided back in the Raimi days mm. just because like even back then he was a, he was probably really tough to adapt and, and make a character that you could take seriously you know and that isn't doesn't come across as lame or what have you and I think those who who are behind this film figured out a great entry point to that character and how to adapt him and how to actually show how dangerous he can be um but also like they they start him out in a way that you know he's actually a hero you know he's depicted in the trailers and in the first 20 minutes of the film as a hero and that was a really interesting take i thought and and at first i'm like you know trying trying to be smarter than the movie i'm trying to think okay well how is how is this being faked or whatever? Like, is he trying to pull our, the wool over our eyes and all that? And I bought everything I saw. I'm like, oh, they like they introduced this concept. Like, Mysterio's a hero, and he's pals with Peter Parker. I'm like, I'm just like gobbling up all the information they're giving me, you know. And we could talk more in spoilers about this character, but I I just thought he was really well adapted. And he brings about some interesting ideas, and he sure as hell influences what's whatever the hell comes up in the future in these in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, which I think is fascinating. I love Zendaya in the movie. I was really taken with Zendaya in Homecoming. That was my first exposure to her. What is that, 2017, 2016? I think 2017 at this point. And, and Zendaya gets a lot of screen time in this film, and I really like her a lot i'm really taking at first like she's so different from the mary jane watson that we grew up with and the, the one that's in the comics and everything that generations of people have grown up with but here i like this new new take on mj uh and and she doesn't go by mary jane like you never hear her go by mary jane ever she goes by mj it's so fresh and different and unique and zendaya sells it i really love whenever she's on screen and all the visual cues and attitudes that they've attached to her really do seem to update Mm -hmm. what this character could become sure Mm. and then she's saying you know in in the trailer peter parker says 
oh, you look nice or whatever. Yeah. And she's like, so therefore I have worth. And yeah. like, like previously you would see like an angry feminist. Well, this is what a feminist looks like now. It's like, well, I'm going to call you out on what you just said, but I like you too. And let, let's move forward. So I appreciated her. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I just really, I just really like this movie overall. There, there's some stuff with Happy Hogan that's fun and enjoyable. I guess we got to get into spoilers. So first, Shanna, generally speaking, was there anything bad about the movie? Anything that didn't work for you in Spider-Man Far From Home? Look, I know we just watched it, but I don't think there was anything that didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I'm over the Aunt May thing. When you say the Aunt May thing, what do you mean? Well, I was taken aback that she was so young the first time I saw her. Yeah? Yeah. That's so funny because to me, like, it makes way more sense that she'd be younger that she'd be in her late 40s or 50s and not like this old old woman because she's supposed to be an aunt not a grandma yeah but at the same time like sometimes you know you call it a lot lamaki in south africa sometimes you had a late child so that would explain that but you know it's it's fine i'm over it i it was a new thing to get used to yeah so this time i'm like this time i'm like oh this actually works you know very cool this, this rarely happens. Usually something bothers me or stands out. And maybe if I listen to other people talk about the movie, things will stand out to me. But I seriously am having a hard time thinking of things that bother me about the movie. I think anyone and everyone should go and watch this. But I think you should. I think it would serve you best if you knew about the other films. You know, look, either you love the Marvel movies or you don't. You're either interested in seeing them or you're not. Yeah. And you're either along for the ride or you're not. And most people, it seems, based on box office, are. So if you still are, continue the ride because this is really damn good. And it's one of the best Spider-Man movies ever made. I, I seriously think that they're doing such a damn good job with Spider-Man that they're rivaling the, the Raimi films of the last decade, particularly Spider-Man 2. Uh, do you think like do you think this is better than Homecoming? Yes, by far. Really, I really, I Were you not really a fan of was not a fan of Homecoming. I'll be damned. Really, I was not on board. I had a very hard time with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So I was more annoyed with it than anything else. Okay. But now I'm like, hey, this is awesome. This is so great. There's so many updates. There's updates to characters. Mm-hmm. There's updates to functions and personalities and habits. It's just, it's yeah. really fun. Yeah, it's definitely more contemporary. That's for damn sure. I would love to speak to teenagers and see what their take is on it because mm-hmm. I think it's really aimed at them too. Sure, sure. I definitely see that. Uh, so for you, the good definitely outweighed the bad with Far From Home. Yes, and I recommend this one more than the other one. There you go. I definitely agree that the good outweighs the bad with Far From Home. I'm a much bigger fan of Homecoming than uh, than you are. But, but I mean, which one's better? For crying out loud, I'm not sure. Like the instant knee-jerk reaction of having such a great time with Far From Home want, makes me want to say this is better. I, I'll give a cautious 8 out of 10 right now. You know, and, and reserve... That to change should the movie settle and I start to, you know, things start percolating a little Mm. bit. What about you? You agree? You feel the same way or what? Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. So let's get into spoilers and then um, wrap up our discussion of Spider-Man Far From Home. If you have not seen Spider-Man Far From Home, which very possible because it just came out for crying out loud. Skip ahead 
to the film fave section of the podcast. Look at the timestamp on the podcast. That's usually fairly accurate. Because we're going to get into spoilers for Spider-Man Far From Home. Right now. Are they gone? Are they all gone? They better be because, boy, we've got some whoppers to go over <laughs> here. Let's let's go chronologically first and kind of gradually get into the big stuff. First of all, we have Mysterio. All right, Mysterio comes across as he's a good guy. He likes um, Peter Parker. He's kind of a nice, like, Tony Stark 2.0 sort of, like, mentor type father figure type thing, right? Maybe a good uncle, you know, to Peter Parker. You know, hey, Peter Parker's able to finally vent all his his, his his stressors about being a superhero to somebody who gets it, you know? And, and, and Mysterio, he poses himself as someone who came from another dimension, you know, which I'm like, oh my God. He, he actually introduces the multiverse. There's a multiverse and this, this planet is 616, which is all true in the comics, right? Very exciting. Peter Parker gets excited. I get excited. Like this is, big stuff you know uh, nick fury and maria hill they look blank faced oh <laughs> you know they're not impressed so you have that first of all how did that section of the movie which is i don't know a half hour 45 minutes of the film work on you i th- i thought you were gonna get upset when they said there was a multiverse because they had established so significantly and spent so much time in the previous film talking about how the timeline you know, you need it not to split into different versions. Unless I'm getting some... So two different things. Some terms incorrect. Yes. Two different things. The multiverse refers to not alternate timelines in the sense that, oh, someone went in, meddled with time, and it split off. More like Uh, these all existed at the same time. Okay. Right? But they're kind of coexisting in different dimensions. So kind of like Spider-Verse. Yes. That is... Is is that part of this? (laughs) I know we're kind of going away, but I'm like... You know what? You brought up universes, so... I don't know is my short answer. all right. Right? Into the Spider-Verse is made by Sony. This is basically like Sony made this film, too. I don't know. They tease things at the end of Into the Spider-Verse... I don't know if they're going to tie that all together. Okay, 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 okay. Um, but the fact that they talk about it in the first place excited me. Uh, so it sounds like you kind of got confused by it. Yeah, probably because you know I, I haven't gotten into the comics with this, mm, so mm-hmm. that was probably why it was a little confusing, a little weird for me. Okay. But the character was cool. I thought it was really well written and performed really well, and it was great to have that for Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. So I thought. I, I like this character. Yeah. Samesies. Um, and also, like, the creatures that he's fighting, he kind of, he uh, comes up with, he calls them elementals, all this sort of stuff. But when they're happening, I'm like, before he explains everything, I think, when they're happening, it's like, oh, like, they figured out a really creative way to adapt some C-level Spider-Man villains. Like, there is literally a villain named Hydro-Man who can turn, who can control and turn himself into water. Right? Very mm. similarly to Sandman. You remember Sandman from Spider-Man I do. Spider-Man I actually, I think I liked him. I did too. So Hydro-Man is very similar. And it's like, oh, they made this Hydro creature. There's another Spider-Man villain named Molten-Man. Who is, imagine Hydro-Man 
only with Molten. lava, right? <laughs> like, same idea, right? They And they adapted that. I was like, oh my gosh, Molten Man. This is very, very clever. So I thought that was really, really cool how to take these C-grade characters that only the most hard, hardcore Spider-Man fans would actually care about and bring them to the screen in some way. Pretty cool, I thought. Okay, so there's the reveal. Halfway through the film, Mysterio does actually turn out to be a dude who's got some bad plans. Mm -hmm. And it turns out everything you've seen for the past 45 minutes to an hour in the film, it's all an illusion that he has created with a team of other people. Yeah, it seems to be like his his motivation is more one of um, glory. Becoming like as well-known or revered as an Avenger is. But it's more like he's mad about the fact that the intelligence isn't as highly regarded as someone in a cape. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Mysterio, Quentin Beck, is a villain. He's a bad guy. He's got bad uh, intentions. And he's targeting London as his final destination where he will get... I guess, cemented as an Avenger and everything like that, right? And he's he's duped Nick Fury and Maria Hill as well. I guess, Shanna, what, what did you think of that turn and what did you think of, of, of Mysterio as a villain from there on? I liked what he was doing, that he was creating the illusion mm-hmm. in a very practical way. Kind of like if someone were to go whole hog with technology that we have currently available to us, they could have done this. It almost is like a Scooby-Doo thing too. You know, often in Scooby-Doo episodes, oh, who did it and how did they do it? It was with a projector and it's kind of the same. <laughs> it's kind of the, the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so all of these things are somewhat familiar to us uh, and they're upgraded, yeah. which is nice yeah. uh, and made current. And I thought it made sense. You made something important for a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't get any credit for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you're going to be mad. So his motivation made sense to me. But I also felt like it could have been seen as a commentary on certain things that are happening in our world right now. You know, he talks about how people believe things easily or people... And I guess it could, you know, you could draw the line with uh, parallel with fake news stuff like... How, how quickly do we believe something that's been posted to social media? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from a good source. Right, right. So I felt, or is, is uh, legitimate. Yeah, so I felt like that was being commented on with his villainy, how mm-hmm. he was doing that. And it's, it's further backed up with, you know, something that happens right at the end. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. So... The one little nit that we had to pick that we talked about in the car is his motivation does seem a little bit muddy because, you you know, you talk about how he wanted this glory, so to speak, of be, of getting credit and for his ingenuity and everything. And, you know, he has to be a caped hero in order to get that, that glory and that credit. But then, like, in the end of the movie, he's talking about how, like, you know, people, like, believe in nothing right now and... And yes, it's at his death that we wanted to talk about. He, he said something about like people believing in something. They believe in nothing right now. And it's a little muddy, but it does, at the same time, with its muddiness, does introduce this idea, these themes of what he represents. You're right. 
uh, in the sense that he does introduce this this theme, this concept of us scooping up what we see and believing, being willing to see, uh, believe what we hear or see. Not everybody is like this. I mean, we like to not think that we are like this, but yet if you look on a lot of social media comment streams, you'll see evidence otherwise, you know, of being told something that is true and something is happening or something is real and it's actually not real or something that actually did happen and people will be like no it's a conspiracy so it works both ways it's true that's totally fair and it elevates the character above just being a garden variety bad guy that the hero has to figure out how to defeat Mm -hmm. right so that's cool that definitely makes him one of the better villains in the entire realistic villain uh, yeah, more it's or not less. just defined on strength. And it's... I also think that there's something, uh, you kind of disagreed with me about this, but I think there's something about the fact that he's wearing in the climax screen capture bodysuit, the same type of bodysuit that they use in these movies like Planet of the Apes or The Lord of the Rings or whatever or that Avatar. these people have to wear um, in order to have this image over them that, that um, creates a character. I think there must be some sort of commentary about also the um, modern blockbuster and, and, and the technology and stuff as well there. It's, a, it's like I said, the movie's really, we came out of the movie really fresh, so I haven't cemented my thoughts on it, but I feel like there's something there as well too, which is uh, would be very interesting if that's the case. Was there anything else about him or that that is worth talking about before we move on? Well, I think we should talk about his last thing that he does. Yeah, okay. Surprise! <laughs> okay, so a couple of things uh, happen in the end. Stay through the credits, by the way. Because not only after the fun vacation go-go's credit sequence, you do get a scene that is quite significant that has to do with Quentin Beck, which is... Somehow, during the fight, in the climactic fight, he videos himself saying that Spider-Man is is essentially a villain. Spider-Man's responsible for everything that's happening in London right now. All that Spider-Man wants to be the next Iron Man, and only he can be the next Iron Man. He won't let anyone else be the next Iron Man. Right, yeah. And then, he goes so far as to reveal that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. This is... Like on a jumbo screen in Times Square or something in New York City. And it's on dailybugle.net, which means it's also international or national news, right? I always figured Daily Bugle's like the equivalent of New York Times. Yes, but we're also living in social media times, so things can easily be shared. It'll be shared, right? Yes, exactly. So the world has been given this news that Spider Man is Peter Parker, Peter Parker is Spider Man. And the movie cuts off right there. And in a brilliant callback to how Homecoming uh, cuts off, where Peter Parker's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Just like Aunt May was at the end of Homecoming. Yeah. So so sweet that they keep his innocence. <laughs> that is incredible. I mean, that makes the, the villain have a lasting impact narratively. Like, we don't even know what's going to happen next. That's the thing. Like... We don't know what movies are coming out, what the direction is, what of, of the movies, what Phase 4, if it, it'll be a part of a bigger picture. We know nothing. There's no way to determine 
with that last bit of information how it's going to be used. Exactly. So it does a great thing where it's like it sets up Phase 4 for Spider-Man, but at the same time gives you no idea what's going to happen or what we're looking at, you know, from here on, which is really fascinating. What I also liked about this movie, stepping just a step away from Quentin Beck, is this movie really is about Spider-Man grappling with being Spider-Man and the risks and the, the, the frustrations and the stress and everything that comes with being Spider-Man. And Nick Fury literally tells him, you need to make a choice. Like, are you going to step up? Are you going to be who you were, like everybody else has has done or, or not? And he really needs to come to terms. Like, he can't necessarily step away from being Spider-Man. He, he has to realize that he's always Spider-Man. And when duty calls, he has to figure out how to answer that call. And I thought that was really interesting in terms of the evolution of the character of Spider-Man. You know, it's not just fun and games and superheroics. Essentially, he has to grow up now at age 16. Yeah. He doesn't really have a choice. Yeah. There, there's some sacrifices he has to make in his life as a result of this. And it also kind of introduces the concept that anybody who is close to him is going to be in danger too. It doesn't, it doesn't really push hard or lean into it, but it does introduce this idea that anybody who is close to Spider-Man, uh, Peter Parker, that is, is actually going to be in danger too. I feel like it's his normal arc. I mean... The poor kid's 16. He's standing up at a Salvation Army fundraising event. Yeah. And, you know, you look at this person in a superhero suit and you think that they're going to be adult. I forgot that he's a teenager. Mm. And then he starts speaking and yeah. it's this little it's this little voice, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I find it fascinating because it makes me think of the, one of the Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire where... Mm his mask comes off and the people on the train are yeah, Spider-Man too. him. And they're like, they have this realization, oh my God, he's just a kid. Uh-huh, yeah. And so part of me is like, okay, when Spider-Man is speaking at this Salvation Army fundraising event, like, yeah. are people thinking about that? Like, I was kind of expecting his arc to go to that point uh-huh. because he is the one that got these powers without choosing these powers and he got it at a very young age. So, of course, he's he has to deal with growing up way before anyone else. Okay. Do you have any other thoughts that you needed to share about the film? I had so much fun with the film. I thought it was all laughter. There were so many points that made me laugh hysterically. Mm-hmm. And I also found it interesting that they went to the tower that that holds the crowns and the jewels and the, the all the treasures, essentially, of you know England's history. Yeah. And then it essentially got destroyed. And it's like, here come the Americans. And I know the situation is shitty, but here they are. And there goes everything for the country's history. That's funny. So I found that a little amusing. Yeah. Something that we haven't talked about yet is the scroll. So something that was interesting, if you wait for the entire film, go through the credits, you'll see Maria Hill and Nick Fury are not the real Maria Hill and Nick Fury. And maybe you suspected that at some point during this film. Like when Spider-Man says, can't we call on Captain Marvel? And he's like, don't you dare invoke her name. name. Don't invoke her name. You know, it was quite 
quite yeah. odd. It's revealed to us that Nick Fury is not on Earth, but he wants his presence to be there anyway. Mm-hmm. And he's actually in space with the on the scroll ship. Yeah, so that was another thing that's like, what is going on? Because, yeah. uh, first of all, it's a big middle finger to all the fans who are expecting Secret Invasion as the next phase of the overarching story, uh, which is a story from 2007 where it's revealed that many of Earth's mightiest heroes, and then some, actually are scrolls, and and they they've been... A, abducted or taken over killed whatever and and replaced by scroll doppelgangers once captain marvel came about and people realized oh there's scrolls in captain marvel people thought that's what it was setting up and this scene at the end definitely kind of says uh no it's not really like f you but still um it's shutting that down but it does leave the question open of like, what in the world is Nick Fury doing in space? And it also brings up, no wonder why Spider-Man was able to ghost Nick Fury. There's no way you could ghost Nick Fury and get away with it. I mean, I guess. Like, maybe you could get away with not picking up the phone twice. But yeah. he'd be at your door sooner. But more importantly, what is Nick Fury doing in space with the scrolls? What, what's going on there? And what, what do we expect to see from that? It, it teases something, but also leaves the door wide open where you have no idea what's going to happen or what's going on there. Could it you be know? this mission of, okay, I want to see how far the scrolls have come because it's been 20 years since he's seen them or something like that, right? Because the last time he saw them... 1995 to 2019 plus five years. So it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because... Yeah. Is he seen, you know, where they are uh, with things? Is he seeing the rest of the galaxy's problems? Is he researching what he can take back to Earth? Because right now he doesn't have a team, necessarily. You know, Peter Parker didn't mention, oh, can we get help from Scarlet Witch from, you know, the new Captain America? Can we get it from War Machine? Can we get help from... Uh, the, the, All those Ant people Man, Wasp. have TV shows coming out by the yeah. way on Disney Plus, <laughs> except Ant Man. But yes, so it it's it's just interesting. Apparently, there is no team, and Nick Fury's gone. So how did he come to that decision to go to space? Yeah, all good questions. I yeah. have no idea. I also like that you know while Spider Man is swinging, he's taking selfies, and that's kind of interesting. And I want to know what he's doing with that because you and I talked about how. You know, Peter Parker had to get money, and the way that he got money was as a photographer for the Daily Bugle. Yes, I thought it was going to set that up too, and it doesn't. But what it does do is bring out J. Jonah Jameson, who is reprised by J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, thank you. Yeah, and And that was fantastic to see. Amazing! Oh my god, I was so excited! I was so excited. But we really need to get going because it's been over a half an hour talking about this movie, and we still have film phase to talk about. I think it's very clear that we love the film Spider-Man: Far From Home. Let us know what you thought about the movie. Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail dot com. All right, now it is time for film phase. We have a big segment here on film phase. We are going through a year-long series of counting down our favorite movies from the decade since the decade is coming to a close 
we have had several editions of this in correspondence with the Best of the 2010s article series on the Gibson Review. This month, we are focusing on our favorite sci-fi and fantasy films of the decade. Shanna, this is very clearly like our jam. This is our genre. Sometimes we have a hard time making a list because of you know, just not finding enough that we loved or just having a lot of blind spots. For me, I don't know about you, but for me, the challenge of this list was I have too many to choose from. It's hard to boil it down to a list. Was that the case for you too? It was rather hard to order them, actually. I had a lot that I loved and I felt like there was a lot of... My first list had a lot of variety. There was some, you know, from things that you hadn't seen and hadn't heard of to things that we both love. It was easy for me to list my top five, but the rest of the list process was very difficult to do Mm -hmm. because I get excited by each concept that each of the films bring up in sci-fi and fantasy. You know, each of them brings something to our attention about our society how it is right now and that's very interesting for me because they'll do it paired with time travel or they'll do it paired with assassination or they'll do it paired with soap opera in space okay interesting i also found that i had directors that i really loved that are really good at this genre Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so my list actually has three directors with two of their movies in my list. So six movies. So it's half your list. Yeah. Is by and then the three other, directors. Yeah. And then the other six are kind of varied. Okay. Uh, I will say similarly, I felt like there were certain, there were like certain series of films that had more than one entry this decade that I felt compelled to choose one mm. entry of. So if it was Star Trek had two movies you picked one right for example and then i didn't do that so much i wasn't able to do that so much with directors but i did try there's just maybe one or two directors who kind of slipped through with um, more than one entry Uh, and also for me this is this was a really great decade for this genre or these genres more sci-fi than fantasy i feel like i feel like there's only like three movies on my list that fall under fantasy and the rest is really on uh sci-fi i think that's the same for me too i think i've only got a couple that are fantasy yeah yeah and then like years like in terms of like specific years that were strong on my list or dominating my list uh it's like there's like three different years that probably like take up most of my list it's like 2015 has a couple for sure and 2014 2012 and 2010 technically take up a good chunk of my list it looks like i'm rather varied Mm -hmm. there's maybe one or two or three that are you know linked to the same year oh four maybe four that's interesting so was there anything else you want to say about your list before you share your number 12 favorite sci-fi fantasy film of the decade you know i wish i had made a list of sci-fi and fantasy of the previous decade because i think this decade meant more to me than Mm. the previous decade Mm. but i think that this genre is also taking off more and more every year 
Yes. One last thing that's worth noting is for qualifying on this list, we ruled out anything based on a comic book because I feel like if you open that door, then you have to you, know, you have all these superhero movies and we're going to they focus on They can have on, their own category. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we're going to focus on that next month. So with that, Shanna, what is your 12th favorite sci-fi and fantasy movie of the decade? My number 12 is Star Trek Into Darkness from 2013. I love J.J. Abrams. I love when he does sci-fi. In my eyes, I think he's a god in this category. The highlight for me in this film is how easy it is to create pawns in the bad guy's mission to seek revenge through acts of terrorism. I love seeing more of the crew interacting and revealing their personalities because, of course, I haven't mentioned this, it's the sequel to the Star Trek reboot. Mm-hmm. From 2009. Captain Kirk's ego is totally checked in this film. Spock's emotions are made even more clear. Uh, a bit of Nevin commentary is present in this film that you know, does that very special thing that sci-fi does. It brings us back into reality uh, using a particular medium, much like how fashion photography often is portraying something about societal views and behaviors of a particular time. That's what, you know, sci-fi does as well, I feel. Mm -hmm. So a favorite line was Kirk to Uhura, are you and Spock fighting? Man, what does that even feel like? Yeah. yeah. Is, is really fun for me. And I'm a, I'm a sucker for the lens flares. People are like, hmm. oh no, it's JJ and he's doing this. He can have as many lens flares as that as he wants. Okay. Seriously. That's my number 12 and it's not available to stream. You know, that's one thing I will say before I reveal my number 12 mm-hmm. is, first of all, we, we try to share with you where you could find these films to to stream. And we focus mostly on Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and HBO now. And it's very odd with this list. Most of, I mean, I'm sure most of these films you can find, you can rent on Amazon. But in terms of a subscription service, a lot of them are either on Cinemax right now or like... um, Fubo? Fubo? yeah so fubo i think it is some some streaming service i've never even heard of so only one of mine is actually on one of the main streaming services i'll bring that up when when the time comes but i thought that was very peculiar for these uh films something that our listeners might want to know is that we find out if something's available to stream not by just searching in google but by rather going directly to the website justwatch.com who now has an app so if you're listening to this years from now and you don't know where it's available to stream chances are that app is going to be able to help you lickety split yeah that's a great resource so my number 12 favorite sci-fi and fantasy film of the decade we're going to start with fantasy here with Ben Zeitlin's debut film from 2012, Beasts of the Southern Wild, oh. which I contend is one of the best films of 2012, um, uh, probably second or third to Zero Dark Thirty. But I had originally, prior to seeing Zero Dark Thirty, back in the end of 2012, I named Beasts of the Southern Wild the best film of the year. And here's what I had said about it. Directed by first-timer Ben Zeitlin, Beasts of the Southern Wild is a low-budget film filled with themes on self-reliance, pride, survival, and the universality of all living things. And all of this is conveyed through the eyes of a child, played by (laughs) first-timer... Oh, God. Quim... 
We apologize for the butchering. I had it so perfectly in my head. Now I can't even say it. Quevensone uh, Wallace, great, great little girl. It's a remarkable debut film with some remarkable performances, including Wallace's, and one of the year's best scores. It is a great score that sticks in my head. I actually just thought of it right now. It's stuck in my head whenever I do think of it. But this is a beautiful film that is an allegory for the Hurricane Katrina issues that New Orleans uh, was dealing with. It, it, ha- it just follows this little girl who's living in these water-soaked slums, so to speak. They have to take a boat to get around with her dad figure, who's a very aggressive, kind of a borderline abusive figure. She And she's kind of on this uh, endless search for her mom as well. And there are some fantastical elements that kind of culminate in the end of the film. Beautiful film, Beast of the Southern Wild. If you haven't seen it, uh, hunt it down. It's from 2012. My number 11 is About Time. This is available to stream on Netflix. It is the 2013 film with the best quote from the film being, some days you want to relive forever and some you only want to live once. Mm. This stars Domhnall Gleeson, you know, mm-hmm. the general from Star Wars with the red hair. Yep. Rachel McAdams, we all know her, she's the best. And Bill Nye. Of course, why wouldn't you watch anything with that man in it? He is like a British treasure in my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) This is a family where all the men can time travel. He manipulates his time, but it can have hilarious consequences and it only affects him. That is all he is capable of manipulating as established in the beginning of the film. Very cool. Yeah, I need to rewatch that film. It's been too long. Do you think it's good for me to mention this is a love story? Yeah. Okay. It's a love story. It's a great love story. Yeah. Very cool. My number 11 favorite sci-fi fantasy film of the decade is J.J. Abrams' Super 8 from 2011. (gasps) Yay! That one's so great. I wrote a review that you can find at the Gibson Review from June 15th, 2011 when the film came out. And here's an excerpt of one of the things I said about it. To say much about the plot of Super 8 would rob you of some of the film's sense of discovery, which is exactly what J.J. Abrams holds dear. We already know about his famous mystery box perspective. The film is a combination of two ideas swimming around in J.J.'s head, and the result of a collaboration between him and producer Spielberg is a film about kids of a certain age for movie lovers of a certain time, with assistance from one of the brilliant visionaries who created the kind of film Super 8 pays tribute. Those films like E.T., The Goonies, and Stand By Me, about kids who are sucked into an adventure while also dealing with family issues and crushes. And this is just a very magical sci-fi film about these, these amateur filmmaker kids who witness a train crash and something breaks out of that train crash that they nobody is supposed to know about. It isn't a perfect film, but it is really darn good. And it's one of J.J. Abrams' original ideas, you know, not one where he's continuing a series or rebooting a series or what have you. It's it's very enjoyable. And it was a breakout film for Elle Fanning, who is just so damn magnetic in that film uh, i love her in that and i enjoy super eight it is my number 11 film on this list my number 10 is of course ghostbusters ah 
this from 2016 yeah from 2016 this reboot it is a reboot right it's technically a reboot yeah it was an attempt at a reboot it's yeah. certainly not a remake i i would re i would totally support a re you know another one mm. strongly intelligent fiercely funny woman in this film and the best moment for me that brings excitement and tears to me all at once is in the third act when Holtzman swings those proton pack inventions of her own design and takes out multiple ghosts at once. And I am like just in freaking heaven. Uh, if, if, if this could like be a ride at whoever made this film, I don't even know if it's universal or, or whoever, like if this could be some sort of ride, I would totally want to play that game. I, that, that was a great moment. I love that moment. I mean, that's the little girl in me screaming mm. with excitement because I always wanted to be a Ghostbuster. It was j- just very empowering for me. It's the equivalent of seeing Rey from Star Wars Force Awakens wield the, for- wield the Force and the lightsaber. Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Leslie Jones, and Kate McKinnon are the Ghostbusters saving New York from apocalyptic paranormal annihilation and are funnier and less sexist than the previous Ghostbusters. Ooh. Don't get me wrong, I love them too. They have a special place in my heart. Say, you're gonna they were lighting no, no, up no, the no. keyboards right now. No, no, no. <laughs> they were my imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. So you know. Okay. Don't think that I'm totally hating on them, but go watch that film now and tell me that they're not sexist. There aren't some sexist jokes in there and sexist depictions. My number ten, moving right along. My number ten, tenth favorite sci-fi and fantasy film of the decade. Wow. Is Godzilla from 2014, which stars. Oh, quite a few people. We have Brian Cranston, Sally Hawkins, got Aaron Taylor Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, so many people. So what's interesting about this movie is, granted, it's not a great film. It has its flaws, but it starts out doing everything that Godzilla, King of the Monsters failed to do, which is really take its time with characters and character motivations and emotions and and really help us care about what happens to these these characters brian cranston he stars as a guy who had his family essentially torn apart by some events something caused um, a issue at a nuclear plant that ended up killing his wife is at the beginning of the film and he's forever shaken and rocked and he he's never able to get over this in fact he devotes the rest of his life to to finding the truth about what happened so to speak and you know godzilla isn't exactly completely unrelated to those events as i as i recall but it's it's really great like in the sense that you you know it, it makes you care about these characters and then it shifts the focus onto other related characters um these people are actually taking this material seriously it's not hokey it's not uh cheesy or what have you uh and i think it really helps sell the film and of course all the spectacle that eventually comes with godzilla the size of godzilla uh, Godzilla fighting these made-up characters. Made-up characters. They're all made-up characters. The, the Mudos, Mutos, whatever. It's, it's just, it delivers everything that you would want. And it's it's a success in every way that King of the Monsters this year was not. And so I 
enjoy it quite a bit. I, I really, really, really like Godzilla 2014. So it's my number 10. I do prefer that one compared to this year's one. Yeah. My number nine is Sorry to Bother You. It is available on Hulu from 2018. So good. Go ahead and watch it. You don't even have to rent it. Just trust me. Don't even watch the trailers. It's an Annapurna film. It's Boots Riley. Is it his debut? Yes. Okay, it's Boots Riley's debut. It stars Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Jerome Fowler, Danny Glover, and so many more. But for those of you who don't trust me enough after my last (laughs) pick... It shows Cassius Green climbing up the telemarketing ladder, selling a variety of things we are unsure of. The reality bite in this film, poverty and difficulty that Americans are facing trying to make ends meet when even working more than one job. There's a lot more to chew on in this film, but go ahead and watch it. Such a good film. That was a great pick. My next favorite film, uh, that is a sci-fi fantasy film of the decade, is... Spike Jones film Her from 2013. This is my one pick that is actually available on stream. It's on Netflix. And I named back in the beginning of the Best of the 2010 series with Love Stories, I named her as the best love story of the decade, calling this story a masterpiece with exquisite performances by Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson, who you never see in the movie, but has a huge presence as this artificial, not artificial intelligence, she's an operating system that can transcend all the different technology that Joaquin Phoenix's Theodore owns and becomes a companion and more to his character, Theodore. It's a film where sci-fi is the setup and really not the main story, if that makes sense. Um, When I called it the best film of the decade, the best love story of the decade, I should say, I said both Joaquin and Scarlett sell the story. Without their performances, this film would fall apart. It needs them to sell this relationship, and they do. Her is beautiful in its ability to depict all of the different aspects of love and loneliness, even sex and desire. No film this decade comes close to tapping so perfectly and so strongly into emotions and experiences we can all relate to on some level. So yeah, that's my pick, Her, from 2013, available on Netflix. My next pick is Star Wars The Last Jedi. This is a Ryan Johnson film. My first Ryan Johnson film in this list, it's from 2017. My favorite line from this film is, we are the spark that will light the fire. Mm. Visually, this is my favorite Star Wars movie. The use of red in this film should be studied by everyone and anyone who loves film and photography. It's the sequel to Force Awakens. It is Rey's training to become a Jedi, or rather master her skills. It is Kylo Ren's ping-ponging dark and light decisions we see a couple other characters too who have significant scenes general leia being one of them we are also reminded of how profitable war is but are seeing it for the first time i believe in star wars films yes that is accurate and so i feel like that's a good routing to reality as well is we forget 
that the wars that we have in reality are profitable. Mm. Not necessarily with lives, but financially speaking. Right, of course. Very cool. That's interesting that you went with that one. Um, my next favorite sci-fi film of the decade is by Denis Villeneuve. It is 2016's Arrival, starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. Basically, it is about these, these spaceships that suddenly arrive all around the world. No, this is not Independence Day. These things just hover. They're not over any national monuments per se, necessarily. They just hover above ground. And it's about, you know, trying to communicate with them. What do they want? What do they need? I had named this the fourth best film of 2016 back at the end of that year. And, you know, I noted that every year it seems like there's one film that could be called smart sci-fi. And boy, is Arrival a smart film. What's most impressive, I said, about Arrival is that it's less about the sci-fi and more about the characters. The film asks... Would you choose to do something even though you knew it would bring you a lot of pain over time? It makes the external personal. It is entertaining sci-fi, but the kind that entertains the mind in very surprising and intriguing ways. Uh, it is one of the best sci-fi films of, of the decade, and it's already starting to garner one of those reputations as, as a great capital G, great film, and one of the best of the decades. So. When I find out that someone knows that film, I get very excited because yeah. I'm like, oh, you see movies for more than just entertainment. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great film, Arrival is. My next pick is my first Chris Nolan, Interstellar. Oh. Chris Nolan's film starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, a great example, a great use of her talent. Uh, John Lithgow, Michael Caine, and a whole bunch of others. An alternate world about the Earth dying and the fight for survival of humanity through time and space. Astronauts and engineers look to the galaxy for solutions. A great story of the love of a father and his daughter. How the depth of a promise carries through time, space, and all. Very cool. My next favorite film... My favorite sci-fi and fantasy film, I should say, of the decade is Ryan Johnson's Looper, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emily Blunt, and Bruce Willis. That's my next one too. Oh, very cool. Well, if I may, imagine I'll set, I'll set up the plot. If you imagine, imagine if your job required you to kill your future self immediately upon sight. That's bad enough. Imagine if you did. It could mean the annihilation of thousands of people in the future. That's the plight that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is faced with in this tightly scripted sci-fi thriller by Ryan Johnson. It's a, I wrote when I named it one of the best films of 2012. I said it tugs its audience in different directions, testing how far they'll go along with the central character. And it is, it is such a crackerjack film and quite close to being the best action film of its year is a, a very cool concept it is very well executed uh ryan johnson who also made brick the brothers bloom and as you mentioned the last jedi just has not disappointed me and i it's possible 
that this might be my favorite film of Ryan Johnson's. What do you have to say about it, Shanna, uh, being your next favorite film? It's like a time travel assassin movie. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the younger version of Bruce Willis, and there you go. Now you go watch it. Right. You know, this is one of my favorite time travel films. Time travel was not only discovered, it was made illegal in this uh, alternate world. And of course, not not for the highest of crime bosses. It's used to dispose of people. Not only do they get assassinated, but they get sent into the past to be dealt with Mm. therefore they're not even existing there's no evidence of them existing my favorite line from this film is i'm not going to talk to you about time travel shit because if we start talking about time travel shit we're going to be here all day yeah yeah my favorite line the reason i love this film not only does it have joseph joseph gordon levitt and bruce willis as one but it deals with time travel in the best possible way after all the time travel movies before it. Mm-hmm. It shuts down the rules of time travel when someone's asking about it with, we're not going to go there. It's just our medium. Mm-hmm. It's on the side. We're going to continue to tell this other great story about questioning your mortality. Very cool. Very cool. My next favorite film, my favorite sci-fi film of the decade is Blade Runner 2049. That's my next one too. Are you shitting me? Wow. <laughs> This is uh, from 2017. I named it the second best film of 2017. And I think I still stand by that, as a matter of fact. It is so damn good. I I had said in my article back in 2017, basically, this is a sequel to a classic film, a hugely influential film, right? And the prospect of making a sequel to it is kind of like, it's one of those, like, let's not do that. Like, why do that? Let's just leave it be. But Denis Villeneuve has the talent, the director of Arrival and Sicario, to to make this film not only a visual marvel, where he takes what was started back in 1982 by Ridley Scott... And he goes even further with it. But he also makes a film that is more fascinating than the original. Interesting thing about this movie is the story goes further than the original does with its themes and its its thought-provoking ideas. Yeah, I mean, Blade Runner 2049 basically surpassed all expectations to be a great film, one of the greatest films of the decade. And it is now my sixth favorite sci-fi and fantasy movie of the decade. How about you, Shannon? What did you think about it? This is the decade where Harrison Ford returns to us. (laughs) He came to us in Force Awakens. Yep. And Mm -hmm. he's back in Blade Runner 2049. This is the most... The reason I like this film is because it's the most beautiful alternate post-apocalyptic world made of stunning cinematography techniques where color, framing, performances, special effects help drive the story pixel by pixel. And every decision is very conscious, you can tell. It's so stunningly shot, so beautifully put together. The story is such a wonderful way for us to question our humanity and our ability to relate to each other that I can forgive 
how they depicted women, or at least try and parallel it with how tr- women are treated around the world today. Hmm. Uh, whereas I actually love the female characters, but at least we can agree on the our enjoyment of that film. So my next favorite sci-fi fantasy film of the decade, my number five, is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes from 2014. Oh, I'm so glad that made your list. Okay, so it wasn't your next one. Okay, so we're not in lockstep there, too. I felt like I needed to choose one of these films. And, you know, War for the Planet of the Apes, I had mixed reactions to, but I really like Rise and Dawn. And I figure, why not go with the best film? And so uh, I love Dawn. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is where we take the setup that Rise creates and goes further with it of, you know, we're getting closer to what we know in the Charlton Heston 1967, I think, original uh, to be the case. We're not quite there yet. We still have remnants of humanity out there. Um, trying to survive, trying to avoid the ape cult, the civilizations. Andy Circus is doing his darn best as, oh, what is his, his character's name? I forget. Caesar. Caesar, thank you. Caesar trying to lead the ape colony. He comes into some conflict with uh, a fellow ape that he saved named Koba, who is, doesn't necessarily share his affection for a human. And and it, it, it's it's really cool because it just shows that you can have two sides of a very tenuous piece and all it takes is one individual to tear everything down with their prejudices. And uh, it's, it's a brilliant film. It's extremely impressive in its CGI. The performance capture is remarkable in this film. Uh, I think that Andy Serkis should have been recognized as a performer better and more than he was um, outside of critical media. But yeah, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, it's, it's a great film and my favorite of that trilogy. I think this is also the decade of performance injustices, such as Andy Serkis playing the role of Caesar and Scarlett Johansson being the operating system she is in her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, that's fair. It really does feel like if we don't start acknowledging it in the next decade, I mean, like, are we really evolving with our awards and our ceremonies? Good question. What's your next favorite uh, sci-fi and fantasy film of the decade? Inception from 2010, my other Christopher Nolan film. Excellent. That's your number four? Yeah. This is a psychological thriller, my favorite score, my favorite concept in the sci-fi world next to time travel dreams our subconscious our secrets the layers of our emotions from guilt insecurity to all the everything in between leonardo dicaprio is hired to infiltrate a ceo's dreams in order to do the reverse of the existing dream of what their existing dream tech is capable of plant an idea let it grow this film has the best best ending ever the one that'll make you painfully hope your interpretation in the end is right. And after you've watched the film, you can thank us and go and watch the YouTube clip that talks about what really happened at the end. Huh, interesting. My fourth favorite sci-fi film of the decade is Mad Max Fury Road. It seems a little low. 2015. 
I think Inception is a little low. So I named it the third best film of 2015. And here's what I had to say about this. This is another example, kind of like Blade Runner, where it's like, do we really need to go back to the well? However, in this case, we have the, the original's creator, George Miller, going back to the well after a huge break and uh, from the f- series and also having many production issues. But what we end up having here is a film that essentially puts Mad Max in the passenger seat to a group of women, most especially Charlize Theron's Imperior, Imperator Furiosa, and it ends up becoming not just a post-apocalyptic thriller that matches the series' best road warrior, but you end up having one of the decade's most progressively feminist films that you could argue helped propel the decade towards a Time's Up movement. You know, this is 2015, two years before the Time's Up movement, a year where we, we it was full of female empowerment, anti-shaming social media, there's pay gap decrying, and you have this film, uh, Road Warrior, with one of the greatest female characters of the decade. And let's also not fail to mention this film just will not stop. Oh my it god, is... there is no breather. Mm-hmm. You have to pause it if you're going to the restroom. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. It is incredibly propulsive adrenaline rush, this film. And it's all about a guy trying to get back his women that he feels are property. I mean, how, how much more decade-defining can you get, <laughs> you know? It's a great film. I love it. That's uh, Mad Max Fury Road. My next film is Star Wars The Force Awakens. You included both Star Wars films. Yes, because... Well, there's technically uh, four. Well, but... this is another one of J.J. Abrams' films. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, how could I not? You don't think that there's going to be another Star Wars film. You don't think that there's going to be another good Star Wars film. And then we get one Mm -hmm. and it celebrates women. It gives all the girls that were geeks who love the franchise too, gives them an opportunity to shine and see themselves on the screen with Ray. I can speak to that. There are possibly other things that allow other geeks of other minorities to feel included with this film. This film is a celebration of Star Wars. It's a celebration of the joy that it brings, even though it is this extremely bizarre, if you think about it, drama happening in space. Hmm. Awesome. We might hear more about that. But first, my third favorite sci-fi film of the decade is 2010's Inception by Christopher Nolan. So, okay, we had it just one down from each other. Right. Okay. So here's what I said in my original review on the Gibson Review of inception way back in july 21st 2010 i had predicted that this is the sort of thing that will infect pop culture and be parodied and talked about for months that ended up being true more probably more than any other sci-fi films uh, this side of star wars also it's it's a heist movie and a tragic love story dressed up as a mind bender Not since The Matrix has a film blurred the lines between reality and imagination with such clear execution. 
This is a film that will overwhelm you in nearly every sense possible, visually, orally, and intellectually. It is escapist entertainment at its most artistic, a popcorn movie for intelligent audiences. I, I, I absolutely love Inception. Revisiting it, it is incredible how well executed this idea of going into people's dreams and and also making somehow tangible the idea of a dream within a dream you know that that experience of having a dream where you think everything's real then you wake up and realize it's a dream but you're still in a dream and then you wake up and realize i just you know that what that was remarkable remarkable this film is remarkable the editing the way it's able to make everything clear how you're able to cohere what is happening throughout this film is remarkable and it has some some of the best visuals most iconic visuals of the decade inception it's still my third favorite sci-fi film and fantasy film of the decade but uh it's a remarkable film my second all-time favorite sci-fi fantasy film of the decade is arrival is it really it really is i love this movie so freaking much you have spoken a bit about the plot Mm mm-hmm The way I interpret this film is it's a story about a visit from an alien race. Mm -hmm. They bring the, you know, they're all over the world. It doesn't necessarily make sense where they are. And it's showing the best of each nation, essentially. You've got America with their language expert, Uh, played by Amy Adams, and you have their mathematician, played by Jeremy Renner. Then in Australia, you have someone else doing something with their specialty. In Russia, you have someone else. So it's bringing the best minds together to try and figure out what these aliens are doing here and why they're here. It's very difficult for me to put into words what this film is about without spoiling anything. Just know that this (laughs) is... (laughs) It's true. I spoiled it for my mother this weekend. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Um, just know that this movie is beyond what you think it is and is so special for that very reason. I feel like it's got one of the strongest female characters in uh, this decade. Valid argument. Yeah, and I, I feel like it has a very respectful male figure next to her being Jeremy Renner's character. Very cool. Obviously, I share your... Love of that, but that's interesting. It's your second favorite sci-fi film of the decade. For me, I felt like I needed to choose one from this decade. And after revisiting them, this one was the most joyous as my second favorite film, uh, sci-fi film of the decade. It is Star Wars The Force Awakens from 2015. I just, first of all, there's the initial experience of watching this film. Right, As a Star Wars fan, there were so many points where I just broke into joyous tears. Oh, like most of the film, right? I mean, all it took was, it's say, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And for the Star Wars logo to, to go on screen with those horns blaring, instant tears of joy, right? I can't um, look at you right now because I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> Han Solo. Han Solo uh, was one of the most affecting experiences in the in the theater ever of the decade, if not ever, period. 
You know, someone I have grown up loving and knowing for decades. But all that aside, watching this film, it's so infectious and fun. It's just plain fun. It may not be the best Star Wars film of the decade, but it is so much fun. Oscar Isaac as Poe Dameron. John Boyega as Finn. Ray, Ray, for crying out loud, Daisy Ridley as Ray, one of the greatest female characters of the decade, one of the most empowering, the, you know, the moments when she gets the lightsaber. It is such an incredible experience and so much fun and joyous. I love The Force Awakens, even with its faults. I, I love the film. It is so, so fun. So yeah, it is my second favorite Sci-fi and fantasy film of the decade. Shanna, what is your favorite sci-fi fantasy film of the decade? Oh my god. I had to not look at you for that entire thing because I thought I was going to cry too. My number one of the decade is Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. I should not be surprised. The biggest, most epic, most hilarious, jaw-dropping ah, uh, road fights you'll ever see. This is what I assume is the story before Max. Although we come across him, he is featured very briefly. The movie is all about Furiosa and the other woman, Breeders. These women come together and not only do they fight for their own freedom, they fight against slavery, they fight for equality, they fight for access to food and water, I mean, every time you think you know where the story is going to go, something happens and you're like, oh, wait, we're going to go there. Oh, wait, we're going to go there. Oh, my God. Yes. It's just a total freaking ride for the viewer. The fight is against an old white decorated man and his brothers who each run a different section needed to have the upper hand above everyone. One in charge of bullets, one in charge of water supply, one in charge of accounting even. All just shows you what this world has become. People are things. They are property. And everyone has a role to serve these three men that rule the world. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that is very well said. I think my favorite moment is when Furiosa breaks down because she realizes the world isn't what she thought it was going to be. Well, her destination doesn't Her destination, yeah. yeah. And all that emotional outcry and release is something every woman can relate to in some shape or fashion awesome so my favorite film on this list ended up actually being a fantasy film it is harry potter and the deathly hollows from 2010 and 2011 yes i am including both parts because it is one film that needed to be split into two in order to tell the story adequately and not have movie theater companies or studios demand it be chopped down that is responsible storytelling right there yeah and it's not two separate films it really is one film just cut in half and this is one of the greatest payoffs of the decade in terms of franchise or series filmmaking it it is probably my favorite of the entire series because of how well it pulls everything off now granted of course this is all based on a book a book i haven't read so you know maybe credit goes to jk rowling for pulling off her long-running uh book series but also credit should go 
to filmmaker, I think it was David Yates, who so well adapted this this series, half of the series, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and, and including this this closer. It is an epic that involves themes of fascism and taking control of your destiny while many beloved characters meet their doom. It is as close as possible to satisfying every expectation. It's also one of the most exciting action films of the decade, too. You could argue, actually. So, yeah, I love Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I think it is satisfyingly dark. You know, these kids have grown up into adulthood, and it, it makes sense. We're dealing with the the greatest stakes, you know, and the man who shall not be named. There's just so many things. Story arcs, character arcs, everything pays off so beautifully, and it's just... I love it. I love it. I love it. I could talk for an hour about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, but I'll spare you. Just go to my reviews from the Gibson Review. They're all there from 2010, 2011, as well as where they rank in the best of each year. It's fantastic stuff. That's that's our list of our favorite sci-fi and fantasy films of the decade. I hope you had as much fun as we did making and, and talking about these lists. What are your favorites? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Before we talk about what you can expect in the next episode, Shannon, why don't you share with them where they can write those angry Ghostbuster emails? Well, I was about to say, you already told them, so I don't have to say much. Wow, look, it's how women are portrayed in the media. What? So you can find me at shannapaxton.com. Don't send me angry emails. We all have our opinions. Fair enough. And, of course, you can find social media links on there, too, for you. Uh, for us, thegibsonreview.com is where you'll find all the past articles, including old reviews from the movies that are mentioned on this list of uh, sci-fi and fantasy films. You can also find the corresponding Best of 2010s list at thegibsonreview.com. That should be up shortly after or around this post, this this podcast being posted go to uh facebook uh, slash the gibson review and instagram at the gibson 99 to find me on social media there i try to post movie related stuff on those links uh you can always donate to us uh to help us run the podcast the website and do the movies that we do uh, go to PayPal, send whatever money donation to thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Appreciate those donations. We'll give a shout out to you on social media for those donations. Thank you very much for that. Ahead of time, find the podcast on Spotify. Oh, that's the other thing. We just joined uh, Stitcher. So you can find the podcast on Stitcher now if you're an Android user or what have you. So, yay! Um, as well as SoundCloud and Spotify and iTunes, which I haven't gotten clarity if um, podcasts roll over to Apple Podcasts automatically. I'm still trying to figure that out. Am I missing anything? No. Oh my gosh, there's so much. So, next time on The Movie Lovers, we will be reviewing that movie that we have been dreading since the beginning of the year. Lion King. Oh, God. Is that what we're doing? That is episode 60. Oh, my God. Please pray for me. Yes. But to balance it all out, we will be also counting down our favorite films from one of the best years of the 80s, 1984. This is like Terminator. Yes. And Never Any Story. There's so many movies from that year. We'll be talking about, we'll be talking about 
all the magnificence of 1984. What we loved from that year is a polar opposite of 1985, where we were so hard we had to make a joint list. In the meantime, of course you could look for that by the way on July 23rd, but in the meantime, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye. It's you don't think that another star a you don't think that another good star that an, let's try this again. What don't you think? Fuck off. <laughs>